Welcome to the Power Kid Podcast, the premier and longest running podcast focused on the modern toy and entertainment industry. Power Kid is an award-winning design and development firm, and we are a proud member of the Adventure Media and Events Podcast Network family. Adventure Media is the publisher of your favorite industry publications, including the Toy Book, the Toy Insider, and the Pop Insider. I am your host, Phil Albritton, and I bring you great conversations with talented people making amazing products for kids. Toys, books, games, TV, movies, I bring them to you here every episode. Welcome aboard. Hello, 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 Power Kids, and welcome to another Power Kid podcast. Guys, every week it is my pleasure and honor to come here and share these conversations with great people making great things for kids. My guest today has tremendous experience. His name is Jeff Pinsker. Let me introduce you to him Throughout his career, Jeff has founded, managed, and sold several businesses, ranging from children's television to educational products to toys. He was president of University Games, CEO of a children's media producer, JP Kids, the CEO of Infinitoy, president at Klutz, president at Pressman, general manager at Cardinal Games, and today is the CEO of Amigo Games in North America. As if that wasn't enough, along the way, he has built one of the most extensive distribution networks in the toy industry with sales in 104 countries on six continents. He's authored 13 children's books, invented over 100 games, which have had sales of 40 million units at retail. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Phil. It's a privilege. You know, as you were doing that, you talked about those six continents. I'm thinking, wow, that's really impressive. But if anybody knows of an account in Antarctica, please let us know. We'd love to make it seven. <laughs> I was going to say, you couldn't. Antarctica is a tough sale, <laughs> as I understand it. It is. Uh, it's, a, it's got a low know, population, too. So we can get 100% market penetration really fast. <laughs> the penguins are, are the penguins in, in the, the market for games. Don't break the ice. I mean, this, this just makes sense to me why can't we we get product into antarctica yeah well you know what we should we should go to the majors and see if they can get those products down there then <laughs> i love it jeff welcome to the show such a pleasure to be able to talk to you just absolutely tremendous experience and we want to we want to unpack everything that you've been involved in as much as we can in 30 minutes but i always go back in time and ask the question how did you come to be involved in the toy and game industry? That's such a fun question to start with, Phil, and thanks for having me on. It's a real privilege to be here. Um, when I was graduating from college, I realized pretty quickly that I was not cut out to work for an investment bank, although that's who I interviewed with at first. And um, there was this one moment when these two guys walked in and they had the same glasses on, they had the same haircut, they had the same shoes with the same medallion on them, they had the same suit on, they had the same red tie. One guy's diamonds were vertical and one guy's Tie, diamonds were horizontal and tie. And I looked at them and I said, gosh, guys, you know, I'm never going to look or dress like that. Um, if you'd still like to chat, we can. But if you know, if you want to take 45 minutes and stroll around this beautiful campus where I go to school, you're welcome to do that. We had a great conversation, but it was clear that, that I was not cut out for that type of work. 
And uh, so some friends, of, I then went on to get a master's degree. And uh, so while I was doing that, some friends of mine started a company. I would help them do that. And the company um, was was founded based on a couple of criteria. Number one, it had to have ten, less than $10,000 in capital requirements. Number two, it had to have no particular skill set needed because we had no skills. We were just some guys graduating from college. And number three, <laughs> all it had to have, uh, the entire inventory, or it wasn't really an inventory-based business, but the entire capital equipment that we had had to be a telephone, I'll tell you when we were back in the day, an answering machine and a typewriter. So we started a company that did practical jokes for pay. And uh, it turned into a fantastic business. We ended up doing corporate events and a whole bunch of other stuff. Unfortunately, that's going to have to be the topic for another podcast, Phil, if you want to dive into those those practical jokes. We take up all of our time talking about those. Uh, but along the way, no, absolutely. one of the things that we did was, this was uh, during the 80s in Silicon Valley. So one of the things that we did was corporate trivia contests because Trivial Pursuit was really hot. And we collected loads and loads of trivia questions. Uh, at the same time, uh, the three original founders of the company all went off to business school. They all got into Stanford Business School. So I think we have a 100% placement rate at Stanford Business GSB, which I think it might be the record uh, for any nation, for any company in the nation, uh, where they met a guy named Bob Moog. Uh, Bob, the founder of University Games, uh, at the time was coming, you know, they were coming out of school and he was just starting University Games and he was looking for trivia questions to do additional trivia packs for um, for Trivial Pursuit that he could sell and try and generate some cash to get the company going. And uh, we had all these trivia questions that were in like on index cards in boxes. I mean, some of them were proprietary stuff because we would go in and research a company and come up with, hey, you know, we've got this new product launch and you know the product specs. So some of it was very, very specific to a company. Uh, we took out all of the proprietary stuff, but we still had thousands of, you know, independent uh, trivia questions that we had generated so I wheeled him into Bob's office and said, you know, we've got, you know, I don't know, 7,000 trivia questions or something. You know, he was paying a dollar a question. I said, where's my check for $7,000? And he said, I don't have $7,000. Are you kidding me? We're a startup. <laughs> anyway, we, we gave him the questions. And by the way, we had to, this is in the days before laptops and, and desktops. So picture us handwriting these out on index cards, typing them on our one typewriter, organizing them by top, putting them in shoe boxes and wheeling them into somebody's office. Um, and uh, anyway, wow. so Bob and I became friends about once a year, typically on April Fool's Day. He'd call me and say, you know, have you thought about entering the toy business? And I thought, gosh, you know, if I've got practical jokes and toys on my resume, nobody's ever going to take me seriously. And uh, so <laughs> I um, and by the way, my father was agreeing with, that, with, agreeing with me at that point because he kept saying, wait a second. I sent you to college to get a, to get two undergraduate degrees and a master's degree. And you're doing practical jokes for a living. Come on, go out and get a real job. That changed by the way, on uh, January 3rd, I believe it was 1987, when there was a front page article on our company in the Wall Street Journal. I didn't tell my father it was coming. Uh, so he had a surprise waiting on his doorstep that morning. And uh, at that point, all of the talk about this not being a real business stopped. But nonetheless, sold that company. Um, you know, Bob you know, suggested that maybe I should join University Games. He would call me on April Fool's Day, which is the anniversary of university games but also of course an important day for practical jokers and i would say something along the lines of gosh you know i'm just not ready yet and then in 1991 i had a kid and uh, my son joe was born and uh, six weeks in February, it was, he's a Toy Fair baby, unfortunately. And uh, six weeks later, <laughs> yeah, I know. Every year I would fly home. I'd take an all-night. And Bob was so gracious about this after I joined University Games. He would, uh, you know, he'd let me take an all-nighter home to be there for Joe's birthday and fly back the next, fly back the next night. So uh, red eyes on both ends, but worth it to be a dad 
as well as, uh, as somebody in the toy business. Anyway, so um, in 1991, six weeks after Joe was born, um, I talked to Bob and said, okay, I'm ready. Here we go. It was kind of on a whim. And at the time, University Games had five employees and eight products. And uh, when I left there 10 years later, we had 350 SKUs with number five game company in the United States, had done uh, six acquisitions, set up four international offices and uh, and, you know, just working alongside Bob and learning from him, I think, was one of the most has been one of the most amazing experiences in my career. And it really set me on the right path. Um, you know, I think that for the first two years I was there, if you asked me, hey, what's your biggest contribution? Uh, it would have been freeing Bob up to do other stuff that really helped to grow the business. So that was how I got into the toy business. And I'm wow. guessing and I've heard this on a couple of your other podcasts. It's easy to get in and hard to get out once you get here. People are incredible. Doing great things for kids is so much fun. Coming up with new products, working in the toy business is, I'm not saying it's easy, but it kind of gets in your blood and stays there. So uh, that was my launch into the toy industry. You got it. And it all started with these 7,000 questions before computers, really before the internet. So all this research, all this time, how many man hours do you imagine that you had in those 7,000 trivia questions that, that was your foot in the door to the toy and game oh industry? Gosh, we had to have 1,000 to 1,500 hours. I mean, we would go to libraries. Yeah. You know, I know how many dimples there are in a golf ball. I know the names of the, the five states that have capitals that, excuse me, it's four states, excuse me, four states that have capitals that start with the same first letter as the state. We this stuff would get. We just internalized this stuff, and it was like a constant. You know, every time somebody would tell us something, we would go, "Oh, that's a great one." We would write it down and then go check the fact. So it was an ongoing process that that you know was built up. You know, this library of questions was built up over the course of a number of years. Uh, But luckily, Trivial Pursuit stuck around, and people loved doing having us do these live trivia contests for them. So it worked out pretty well. Absolutely. You are probably very dangerous in Trivial Pursuit. You know, I haven't. Uh, I, I used to be. I have a giant blind spot on pop culture. So I can do history pretty well. I can do the science pretty well. I can do most of those slices of the pie. But when it comes to pop culture, anytime after about 1990, forget it. I am I am lost. So I'm, I'm a good teammate, but I am not the leader on a trivia team. So now, how did you get from the game industry into children's media and production? Uh, that seems like a, a pretty large shift. How did that happen? Yeah. So um, when I left University Games, um, I went to run a company called JP Kids. And JP Kids at the time had, was a, as you mentioned, a children's media company specifically in children's television. And one of the things they were finding was that children's television might be the the worst business model in the history of business models. Um, and there, at the time, there were five customers, um, you know, the, the five kids networks. Each one wanted a different type of show. Typically, it would take three to four years to get a show greenlit. And you were also competing against the buyer's ideas. So picture, if you will, that you're going to call on Target and the Target buyer says, well, that's a great idea for a game. I've invented four games. I think we're going to do our games this year instead of your games. That was the type. And there are only three slots open. So those are the types of odds that we had in this business. It was long. So in meeting with a guy named Jim Steyer, who started JP Kids, and and it's a really fascinating story. He started, he he was a kid's advocate. And the reason he started JP Kids was that he was 
disappointed in the quality of children's television. He felt like that the, the networks were not doing a good job of coming up with, with shows that were good for kids. And um, I don't know if you remember this or not, but Congress enacted a law, no, excuse me, as guidelines that uh, children's broadcasters, and that included the cable networks, had to have four hours of educational programming a week. Not a day, but four hours a yes. week. This was uh, back in, yes. know, right around the turn of the, the 21st century. And uh, Power Rangers hired educa- – um, Power Rangers Fox hired educational consultants to show why Power Rangers was educational programming for kids. And I think that might have been the thing that sort of triggered this. And Jim said, hey, you know what? We can do better than this. We've got five people that decide, you know, the five green lighters at these networks that decide what an entire generation of American kids are going to grow up watching. And they are not really all that interested in what's good for kids. So he started a company that would be good for kids. And that was sort of what drew me to them. That was the mission. But the challenge was that the business model was so, so tough that you couldn't really make a ton of money from the shows themselves. You had to worry about the mer- the ancillary rights, the merchandising, you know, the ability to distribute something internationally. And that's where I came in. So I had no experience in children's television, but I had plenty of experience in international distribution, in merchandising and creating product. So the idea was that we would try and create these properties and be able to hold on to the rights that went with them. And that was how we could generate more consistent revenue for the company. Um, you know, we had a super high powered board filled with really smart people. And every year I'd have to get up there and say, okay, so here are our projections for the year. And somebody would say, well, you know, how accurate are these projections? And I'd say, you know what? They are binary. In the television world, it's either all or nothing. We can get three shows placed, in which case we're going to do, you know, this many millions of dollars, or we get zero placed, in which case we'll do nothing. And uh, that made it really challenging to run a business. So the idea was to try and smooth this out with merchandising. And I think that was what attracted them to me. And what attracted me to them, as I mentioned, was the mission of doing quality programming for kids. How many shows a year did you have to pitch to ensure that that you made your numbers every year? Yeah, well, we didn't make our numbers every year. Um, As I said, it was a tough, tough business. Um, But typically in development at any given time, we would have between 20 and 25 shows. Um, And those might be working with different creators. Some were internally developed. We had a showrunner on staff. We had really talented people working on this. But the challenge, as I mentioned a moment ago, was that, you know, if a product, if if a show was right for Nickelodeon, it probably wasn't right for PBS and that it probably wasn't right for you know, any of the other networks as well. So each show was kind of designed specifically for one customer. And if they didn't take it, we could try and go back and retrofit it. But typically that didn't work, right? Think about the difference. They blended a little bit now, but think about the difference in, you know, sort of aesthetic and and ethos, if you will, uh, a show that's on PBS versus something on Nickelodeon. And that gives you a sense for, you know, how we had to develop individual products. So, you know, the corollary here would be doing custom products for each and every retailer that you wanted to sell to. Right. right. No, wrong, wrong. Right. You said and right, what, but it's really are, wrong. It's all, as I said, <laughs> Phil, it is a horrible model. <laughs> it's, it, it was tough. It was a tough, tough business. <laughs> that, that's tough. What, what did you learn there in children's media that you translate into the toy industry now? Because you're, you know, you, you take the, you make the switch back into the industry 
What did you learn in that tough industry that you take with you that encourages you that, that you learned from? You know, in a general sense, I learned a lot about resilience. I learned a lot about customer facing and really understanding a customer before you pitch something to them. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. we did these these meetings were hard to get and we did not want to be there and have somebody say, look, we've got seven products like this in development or, hey, we've got three products. You know, we've got three items, you know, shows like that are already on the market. They've failed with this theme or this this approach. So really understanding the customer was number one. Uh, but number two, and I think this is the most important, was that in the game business and the toy business, um, we tended to look at it, to develop what we thought was a great product and then bring in maybe some educational consultants to help us make sure that the, that there was a curricular ability that the product had that could help kids and tv flips that the the curricular people are in at the beginning right so when we're pitching a show even if it's to a to an organization that didn't care about the curriculum the educational piece we would always have curriculum built in from the start so we knew what we were trying to do and why we were trying to do it so that was really instructive to me in terms of developing product later in my career because instead of doing it and then looking backwards and saying, well, what did we do that was good for kids? It was to really have that focus on what's good for kids to start with and then build from there. Yeah. So really interested in your work with Infinitoy in the Zoob brand. Zoob uh, invented by Michael Gray. It's kind of this pop socket construction system based on bone anatomy, really. It's, it's a great product. Tell us about your time there and the relaunch of Zoo. Yeah, so it's a it's a fantastic product. It was beautifully designed. Um, I remember, you know, in I think it was 1997. I will say uh, when Zoo launched, it was the talk of Toy Fair. I mean, they had this mm-hmm. giant ten foot, you know, ten foot tall and twenty foot long Golden Gate Bridge they had built out of Zoo pieces in their booth. They were walking around. Right. In, they were walking <laughs> around in white lab coats, and everybody was buzzing about this beautifully designed product. Um, and it was. It was a gorgeous product. And as you mentioned, it's based upon the way that um, that picture. Let me back up for a second. So picture, if you will, a product that's about it's a it's a tube. It's about two and a half inches long. And on one end of the tube, you've got something that looks like a golf ball. On the other end, you've got a jaw and the jaw snaps onto the golf ball. So this product holds its position much like a Lego piece would. Legos are designed to go together and stay together. Uh, but it also articulates. It moves. And that was the beauty yes. and the, the really interesting dynamic piece of Zoob was that it was a construction toy that wasn't built to be static. It was actually built yeah. to be dynamic. Yeah. And the design. Well, it makes that great clicking yeah. sound when you move it, that great yeah. pop. Oh, it's, 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 so a, it's a beautifully designed yeah. product. So anyway, um, when we were, when we were selling in the process of selling JP kids, um, I was on a plane back to New York and, uh, to meet with one of our customers. I think it was going to see, um, Nickelodeon. And um, I happened to bump into one of my old sales reps from University Games, a guy named Doug Kaysen, um, on the way. And I said to Doug, you know, without him knowing that I was thinking about getting back in toy business, I said, hey, you know, um, I'm thinking about doing some interesting things. I'm at this other company, some new, maybe something new. You know, what's missing? What's, what's the, where's the white space? What's missing from the toy industry right now? He said, you know, I don't know. That's a, that's such a 
good question, Jeff, but it's a saturated market. But you know what I miss? I miss Zoob. And I said, whatever happened to Zoob? And he told me this crazy story about, you know, Michael Gray's Michael Gray and team doing a great job of building the company up. They had some offers to sell it, decided not to sell it. And then the whole thing just kind of exploded. And the rights, you know, the, the rights landed over here and the inventory landed over there and the packaging, you know, the right, somebody, one of the printers that was holding packaging, the whole thing was a mess. Um, so I talked to Doug and, and I said, yeah, gosh, I remember that product. It was so good. And, um, I, and he described this and, uh, anyway, he mentioned a guy named Greg McVeigh. Uh, Greg had been the last CEO of Zoob. He was there for the final six months of the company um, and was trying to hold everything together. Uh, anyway, I said, oh, I'll call Greg. He said, you should talk to Greg and see. He'll know about what's going on. And anyway, so I um, made a note to talk to Greg and then actually bumped into him on the floor at Toy Fair. And we talked about it a little bit. And he had actually just been hired to try and find a new home for Zoob by the folks that own the intellectual property rights. And uh, he and I talked about it and decided that a good home would be with us. So we formed a company, acquired the rights, and then relaunched. And uh, it was a it was a great, we, we did, it was one of those things where we, we, almost, we did almost, even though we, we had a lot of industry experience, Greg had run Demert, um, had been in the industry for a while. We, I, I'll say purposely, and I don't remember exactly how purposely it was. We purposely made a lot of mistakes. So we launched with six SKUs. We showed it at Toy Fair. We told people we weren't going to ship until September. Uh, they had to order once because we were only going to do one production run. Uh, we, you know, there was a whole bunch of stuff that made it super hard for customers to buy, but nonetheless, we signed up. I think signed up 400 customers just at Toy Fair. It was a phenomenal number. Hmm. And uh, that gave us, you know, enough oomph behind it to do the first production run. We then, you know, scrambled to try and track down the tooling and get that into a new factory and all the other (laughs) stuff that goes with that. And and then launched and the selfie was great. The product is, as you mentioned, is beautifully designed and beautifully manufactured. So that was kind of what, what, relaunch Zoob into the market. The, the other thing that we discovered along the way, and this is where that statistic about the 104 country distribution network comes from, is that um, it turned out that this was a really great product for international sale because it's language hmm. independent, yeah. right? Yeah. So our, our instructions had no writing in it. The only thing that had to be changed was potentially the copy on the back of the box. And um, we didn't, you know, I didn't, we didn't know this going in, you know, in the game business back in those days, it's different now, but back in those days, if you could, if we could license one of our products to one territory in one year, that was a giant win. That was a big international business for us. And, uh, this was one where, you know, I went to the Hong Kong show, set up this dinky little booth. And, uh, I think we signed up 20 countries on the first day just because the product is so easily demonstrable, clearly well-made and, um, you know, relatively reasonably priced. So, that was kind of the, the big surprise to me was, oh, gosh, you can sell internationally. And uh, so in the end, we were doing about 55% of our revenue outside of the U.S., which at the time was a phenomenal number. This was in the very early days of email, just to give you a sense for when this was. So the ability, our ability sure. to you know, keep in touch with someone internationally and to work internationally was challenging. Um, but we managed to do it. And uh, the other neat thing was that we then used the revenue that we got from those international sales to fund our domestic build. Right. Because, you know, what's one of the biggest challenges for any young company or startup is cash flow. So, you know, the fact that we could sell internationally, have those folks pay for their orders, you know, in June would give us the wherewithal to make sure that our warehouse was full in August and still be able to pay our our vendors. 
Wow. Amazing story. And, and much like a box Zub, you had to put all the pieces together, which was really the big challenge of, of creating that business again. It absolutely was. And, um, you know, the good thing was that the product was had been so well received and people had such a f- fond memories of it and knew that it sold, uh, that it was relatively easy. We were sort of stitching it together behind the scenes. And Greg, of course, knew all the players, which was really helpful in getting that done. But to the, from the sure. customer standpoint, from the retailer standpoint, they were just excited to have a good product back on their shelves. Amazing. So from university to Cardinal and now Amigo games, I mean, games has been a large part of what you've been involved in. How has the games industry changed in your career through your time? There have been lots of things that have changed, of course, but I think that the, the big answer to this is on the distribution side, uh, on the side of the retailers. So, you know, when I joined the game business, there were probably, call it 3,000 doors that were that were open to sell to that don't exist now. And that was places like Zany Brainy, Noodle Cadoodle, Imaginarium, Nature Company, which became Discovery, um, you know, Store of Knowledge, Learning Smith. You know, think of the middle tier, if you will. Um, and so I think the challenge for those folks was that they couldn't compete with the big guys on price and they had trouble competing with the mom and pop independent stores on service and, you know, and, and product knowledge. So they kind of got caught in the middle. But what it meant was that it used to be that when you introduced a game, you could start locally. You know, if you had an idea for a game and, you know, you, you came up with call it $25,000, right? One of the, one of the great things about the game business and one of the challenges about the game business is the barriers to entry are pretty low. You've got an idea and $25,000, you can get 5,000 games in your, in your garage. Um, but then you got to figure out how to sell them. And back in those days, you could sell them locally and you could do a rate in effect, a radiation strategy and start with one store, you know, stand out there on a Saturday, 12 units, sell 12 units, train the staff, go to the next store, go to the next store. Once you then had enough of a, of a win behind your sales, you could bring on reps, start to do a little bit of national business. And then you could jump up to this second level, these stores that I talked about a moment ago. And that gave you the chance to, cut your teeth, if you will, uh, learn how to work with bigger stores, learn how to market on a, to, on a national level, and you know, learn all of the logistics and operational piece that goes with shipping to chains. And then from there, once you had a success and you knew what was successful, you could then bump up to the mass market. And Toys R Us, of course, was an important in- intermediary step to that one as well. Those stores, right. including Toys R Us, don't exist anymore. So it's really, really challenging to jump from independent specialty distribution up to mass market distribution. And I think in a lot of ways that really hurts innovation. Say what you will about Toys R Us and, and why they went out of business. I know that there's lots of talk about the fact that they had too much debt and there's a bunch of stuff. But I think the biggest challenge was that there was a fundamental change in the way that Americans shopped and having a you know big footprint toy store you know that made money for a limited amount of time because we are all in a seasonal business was a really difficult challenge to manage. But um, that said, Toys R Us was a place that had enough square footage that you could put something new on the shelf. You could truly be innovative. And, you know, Target and Walmart do a good job of bringing in new product. But for the most part, you know, they really aren't innovators. Something has to have a place in the store. It's got to have a home. At retail, it's got to have a home in the store to make it onto their shelves, and they want to have some sense of track record. You can't blame them, of course. Uh, but what it means is that innovation is being squashed a little bit without Toys R Us there to give people the chance to get something on, you know, get product onto the shelves that's truly innovative. 
Um, the other thing that's changed, um, and this has been relatively recent, and this is one that, that may draw some booze from the crowd because I'm going to give a, a pat on the back to Amazon, is that Amazon's product reviews mean that the product quality is going to change and it's going to improve. And it is improving. So it used hmm. to be that, you know, you wow. bought a game, yeah. unlike a book, you can't buy, you know, can't tell a book by its cover. Well, you yeah, bought a game by, a, by its cover, right? You would have a great game. You, you thought it was a great game. You pick it up, you read the back, you take it home, and then you'd find out it was any good or not. Now, manufacturers are being forced, and many, many aren't being forced. Many do it because they want to. And of course, everybody wants to put out good product, being forced to do better quality components and better quality gameplay because these Amazon reviews tell consumers what's going on inside the box. And I think that's a tremendous opportunity, but it's a tremendous opportunity for, for young game companies, of course. Uh, but it's also a great thing for the industry as a whole. You know, games are not something that kids magically know at the age of three or three and a half that they are developmentally ready to, to play. It comes to a parent or caregiver, whether it's at school or guardian or any place else to introduce them to games. And if parents have bad experiences playing games because the games that they bought aren't fun, don't last for a long time, then they aren't going to be as excited about teaching kids games. So this all feeds into a trend that we're seeing where games are really strong right now. And yes, part of that is a reaction to people, you know, having screens and wanting to try and get, bring their families closer together. Um, but part of it also, I think is, is coming from the, ability of game companies to up their game, if you will, um, and make sure that the quality of the product inside the box is as good as it can be. And so, you know, for every retailer who complains, and this is a complaint that is totally legitimate, that somebody walks into their store, posts something off the shelf, scans it and says, oh, I can buy it for $4 cheaper on Amazon. I'll just buy it now and get it shipped to my house. Um, there is another one that, and that walks in, picks up two games and says, huh, I wonder which one I should buy. Looked at the Amazon reviews and then buys one of those. So there's a little bit of, of give and take, a little bit of back and forth on this. Yeah. For, for young game manufacturers, do you think that Kickstarter, digital marketing, uh, direct to customer, Amazon, are those the, the new version of taking your game to a mom and pop store and kind of building your footprint from there? Is, is that the environment that we're in? Is that is that the replacement for that old way of doing business? You know, I don't think the independents need to be replaced. They're still there and they're still a vital part of the industry and they're still you know willing to give a go to, to new products. So I think that Kickstarter is a supplement to that. You know, I would, uh, my sense is that, you know, unless you, you know, have a runaway success like Exploding Kittens, um, you know, you're not going to generate enough business from, you'll generate enough business from Kickstarter to do your first production run, but you won't generate enough business to stay in business. So you've got to go out and find those specialty retailers. And the wonderful thing about special retailers is they truly care what's on their shelves. Not to say that the folks at Target and Walmart don't, they do too. Of course they do, right? And they spend a lot of time looking at product. But the specialty, I think, is much more willing to give things a shot. They're willing to let you train their staff. They're willing to let you come in and stand there on a Saturday afternoon and, and pitch the product to, to customers and do some demos. And it's a different way of marketing um, and than you can get anyplace else. So I think specialty really plays an important role in the launch for new companies. I would, you know, caution young game companies not to overlook them and encourage young game companies to go after them because I think it's a really great way to, to launch a game. And Kickstarter 
does a good job for it as I think games are still the number one category on Kickstarter. Uh, once again, low barriers to entry make it easy, easier for people to get product up there. Uh, but at the same time, um, you know, Kickstarter, I just don't think Kickstarter alone is enough um, unless, and this is another thing that a lot of young game companies have, I don't know if they've done it by plan or not, but you know, all the big guys, uh, you know, everybody looks at Kickstarter to see what's going on. So sometimes it's a good way to pitch a game <laughs> to a large company um, that you might not be able to get in to see otherwise. So if you can't get an appointment with Hasbro and you put it up on Kickstarter and do a good job in launching the product there, maybe Hasbro sees it or Spin Master or Cardinal or somebody else, and then they can pull it together and um, bring that game into their line. Yep. Proof of concept. Yeah, exactly. So you recently set up the U.S. office uh, for Amigo. Uh, what are the challenges of branching outside of Germany? Uh, what are some of the obstacles that you're overcoming as you do that and extend your footprint? You know, the, the interesting piece of this is that, you know, I don't just quick background on Amigo. So Germany in, in Germany, Amigo is the number four or five game company been around for 40 years. They have a reputation for doing beautiful, beautiful but relatively simple products. Um, we'll talk about that. We'll t- I bet we'll talk about that a little bit later in the podcast. Um, but yes, um, they they are established and they've got a brand that's meaningful. Um, you know, the number one game that they've got is a game called Holly Golly. We do it here in the U.S. under the name Fruit Punch. They've sold over eleven, I think, up to twelve million units of it now. It's like a a staple, mm. much like Monopoly would be here in the U.S. It's a staple of German households. Kids growing up play Holly Golly. And uh, so to, to start with a, a brand that's meaningful someplace else, but not meaningful in another country as big as the U.S., provoke, you know, creates a challenge number one. And you know, my approach to this is that the game business is really a title-driven business, not a brand-driven business. The brand, the title is the brand. So mm. you know, in much the way that you would, if you're going to the movies, you wouldn't say, oh, I want to go see the latest Sony Pictures release, right? Maybe that's an exception for Disney or Pixar, Um but other than that, typically you're thinking about what movie you want to see based upon who's in it or what the theme is or some advertising that you're seeing. And it's the same with games, right? I mean, the, the fact that we've got a game that sold 12 million units that's doing quite well here in the U.S. under the name Fruit Punch doesn't mean that somebody's going to go out and buy another one of our games. The, the brand doesn't mean as much here. So doing title marketing, I think, is a particular challenge. The you know for us because we start with a with a product line you know if you're talking about an independent small up and coming game company and they have one or two products to focus on that's pretty I won't say it's nothing's easy right but at least they can focus all their efforts in one arena for us we've got a, a line that now has. 30 products in it. So we've got to do something that does build our brand at the same time that we're promoting individual individual titles. So that's challenge number one. Challenge number two is one that, that we get a lot of support from on Germany, but I've talked to other companies that have tried to do what we've done um, in the US. Many have succeeded. Um, and that is the packaging and the aesthetic. You know, the European sensibilities are different than the US sensibility, American sensibilities. So we spend a lot of time, you know, not only looking at the gameplay, but thinking about what thematic content is right for the U.S. And then also repackaging everything. We're typically not trying to, to change the gameplay at all, but we are trying to change the appearance of the product so that it fits and feels right on a, on a, on a U.S. shelf. And that's when you get into things that are subjective, not object. And it's very difficult to quantify you know, the success or failure of that. The Good news for us, as I said, is we have a very open and, and supportive team in Germany who's happy to have us do this. Um, I've talked to some other 
international companies that say, no, they made us keep the, the European packaging, which has been a you know, sort of hamstrung us. It's been a, a limiter uh, to our success here in the U.S. Throw in all the other things that, you know, we run like a startup here, even though we're backed by a larger company. Um, you know, we have a relatively lean staff. We use a third party logistics warehouse. We keep our costs low and our overhead low. And uh, we're very focused on growth. But that's got to come uh, from a small, um, talented, overworked staff. <laughs> well said. When, when you sit down with a new game concept, how do you know that, yes, this is an Amigo game? What makes Amigo games special? I know you have the Amigo Credo, uh, and, I, and I love that. And so tell us about it. Yeah, let's let's sort of start with the credo because I think that informs the answer. And then I also will cover what I think makes a good game and then sort of meld those two things together. And that tells you uh, a little bit more about how Amigo approached it. So our credo is that, you know, I had the the delightful task of going through Amigo's archive of the, you know, the thousand plus games they put out in 40 years. And I sifted through them and picked out games I thought were right for the North American market based upon three primary criteria. The first one is that they have to have five rules or less. The second one is that they have European quality, both in terms of the components, thicker chipboard, linen finish, rounded corners on the cards, um, but also the gameplay. So even though they only have five rules, there's, they're robust, there's chances for interaction, there's typically a lot going on, even though they're very simple to learn. And number three, I wanted them to all retail for what I would call a reasonable price. Right now, everything in our line, with the exception of two items, so 28 out of 30 products, retail for $20 and under. So um, I felt like that was sort of the sweet spot of opportunity to have a success here in the U.S. And I want to circle back to the five minutes for a moment, the five rules, excuse me, for a moment, because that's really important. As I think about games, you know, more and more we're seeing that people are interested in experiences more than they're interested in stuff. And I think that's a big challenge for a lot of consumer packaged goods categories. For games, however, you know, games are the intersection of experiences and stuff. You buy a game not because, well, there's some collectors out there, of course, but you buy a game not because it looks good on your shelf, but rather because it's something that's going to bring your family together, your friends together, the experience that you get while playing it. So I think of it this way. You've got a mom and a dad who are dual income earners. They're both running around all day. Somebody's going to leave work early to pick up the kids. Um, you know, they get dinner, they rush to get dinner on the table. The homework is done. The dishes are done. Everybody's exhausted. There's 30 minutes left before dinner, before bedtime. And you want to do something that brings your family together, but what are you going to do? So if that's the time frame that we've got to work with, we have to have a game that's very easy to learn and relatively fast to play. And that's where this five rule thing comes in. Luckily, the five rule thing has helped us also at retail because a large part of our marketing is based upon demonstrations in stores. And if we can teach you to play in five minutes, five, five rules or less, we can teach a customer how to do that. We can also train a staff member how to do that. So people can pick up these games and start playing right away. We've built in the quality. These are games that have been proven you know, out. So, so for the most part, we're still pulling from Amigo's archive, which gives us the opportunity to know what's sold, what hasn't sold, what's had international success. And I think that's one of the reasons that it's worked out so well. In terms of what makes a good game, I think that you have to approach it from what people don't like about games. And there are three things. People hate to read rules. They hate to wait for their turn and they hate to lose. 
So we try and build into our games things that will overcome each of those each of those objections. So the five rules or less makes it easy to learn the rules so that people can get started playing really quickly. Um, hate to wait for your turn. We typically do a lot of all play games where everybody's participating at once or where there's a you have a vested interest in paying attention to another player's turn. And then the third on the hate to lose, we handle in a couple of different ways. The first one is that we try and make sure that our games are a combination of luck and skill. So it's not always the luckiest person that wins. It's not always the most skillful person that wins. There's a little bit of both. And that's number one. Number two, we try and make sure that the games have a relatively short play time. So for a younger kid, it's going to be a 10-minute game. If the kids get older, it's going to be 15 minutes. Families, maybe 20. But the idea is that you've got 30 minutes or you've got an hour to play games, you can have multiple players and that combination of luck and skill means that you you can have excuse me, multiple game plays. And that combination of luck and skill means you can have multiple winners. So at the end of the hour, you might have played three times and you've had two or three different winners, uh, which overcomes that last objection of people hating to lose games. So those are the things that we're thinking about as we review products. Amigo has a sort of a specific footprint of product. They tend to be a smaller footprint to go with those lower price points. Um, that means that we're hopefully being a little more respectful of retailer shelf space. The shelves are tight these days and it's tough to squeeze stuff on there. We, um, in Germany, I'd say we're, you know, we do a ton of card games. Uh, we also do board games um, as well as, as I said, these sort of all play family games and, and kids. We have another line that, that's predominantly sold through hobby, the hobby channel. Um, and those don't quite follow all those rules, but that's such a different market. So we try and have a different sensibility there. Amazing. Listeners, I'm going to give you a second to just go back and rewind because <laughs> you're going to want to listen to that again. Jeff, you crammed so much good information into that answer. Thank you for that. Uh, thorough and thoughtful uh, about the, the current uh, the current game industry. Thank you for that. What, what do you see for the future of Amigo Games, what's what's coming down the pipe? What are you excited about? You know, I'm ex- we've got a nice base of distribution. We've got great customers who give us tremendous support, and uh, you know, so for us, it's we have a lot of learning to do still, but um, we will get to do two things. One is we'll continue to draw from the archives that we've got proven sellers uh, from around the world. We, um, Amigo sells in about 50 countries. So we've got plenty of data to work with. We understand what works and what doesn't work, I think, much better than we did two years ago. Uh, but we'll also start to do some, I would guess, some U.S.-only um, product development. And I'm looking forward to that. It's been a little while since I've actually invented games. So um, working with inventors... I think Amigo does a tremendous job of working with the inventor community. Um, you know, we ask the inventors to be a little bit knowledgeable about what it is that we do and what we don't do. For example, you know, skill and action games are not our thing. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's lots of opportunity for us to see. And we have a wonderful editorial department in Germany. Uh, they can see sometimes just the kernel of a really cool gameplay mechanism or gameplay system and something that might be you know, completely lost on other folks. So uh, they can then build that, brush it out, polish it up. And I think that's why Amigo has a reputation for such great playing games. And as I said, I love the simplicity of them as well. They're easy to, they're easy to teach. And uh, I don't see us moving away from that. Although I do, as I said, see us doing some U.S. product development as well. Wonderful. Well, Jeff, as we close down here, thank you for such a great conversation. I want to ask you a question that you asked your friend earlier in the podcast What's missing in the toy industry? It's a loaded question, I know. It's a tough one. What's missing? What, what do you think? 
from a game standpoint, I think that games will continue to to grow and progress as they have. Games have always been a reflection of what's going going on in society. So Monopoly comes out of the depression when people are worried about you know real estate and home ownership and you get risk out of the Cold War. So we will continue to have games as a reflection of what's going on in society to a large extent. And I think that, that plus the higher quality gameplay that I talked about a little while ago will certainly propel games forward. Um, but the place I think where where toy manufacturers are struggling a little bit is the connection between the analog and the digital, right? The, the traditional toy with some sense of electronics mm-hmm. and some seamless online something or other. Right now, you know, those really haven't taken off in any sort of meaningful way. The example that I'll use was um, Scrabble, right? So when, when Scrabble came out on the iPad, I thought it was genius. You could use your phone as your individual rack to hold the letters, it's beautiful. What a, what a fun concept. You're using your phone. It's great. People liked the actual tactile sensation of playing with wooden tiles better. And they liked the, you know, it was easier and faster to just play the game as it was. So there hasn't really been this seamless integration that I would expect to see. So, you know, it's going to be a new category. Somebody's going to crack it. And you think back to the way that Webkins did that in terms of, um, you know, a, a, a stuffed animal that yes. was basically plush right. with an online piece to it. Um, you know, not seamless integration, but nonetheless, it built a story and a narrative for a kid um, in a way that no product had before that. So those types of things, those in quotation marks here, innovative opportunities. Um, but, with a piece of simplicity built in, one of the things that we're seeing is that there's so much intuition that goes into the tech products that we use these days. I mean, you don't get a tutorial, you do get tutorials, but nobody uses them on how to use your phone, but everybody knows how to do it. You watch, you see babies and little kids using iPads, this, this intuitive, the intuitive aspects of the user experience I think has not really been brought into the toy world yet with toys. You get it more than you do with games, but yeah. That, I think, is the next big opportunity. But, you know, Phil, you talked to lots of smart people on this podcast. What have you heard? Well, I'm going to, have to turn this question back on you. What do you think is missing? <laughs> what, what is the next thing? What do you see coming down uh, the road in the next few years? It is. It's a great it's a great question. It's a, it's a loaded question. It's a heavy question. Uh, and we all come from different different aspects of that question. But, Jeff, I would say definitely uh, you're onto something with with the digital some digital solution that matches the way that kids play on social media with the physical world, with some sort of a collectible uh, and, and builds on itself right now. It just, it still feels like two different things, the physical and the digital play. It feels like two different things. And the company that comes along and, and merges those in a creative and unique way, I think we'll, we'll beat a path to their door. Um, I think AR and VR, the technology is not there. I, I mentioned this some on the podcast and on other places that I talk I think AR and VR is a tremendous opportunity to do some amazing, amazing things. Our imaginations just go wild thinking about what the possibilities are of walking into a toyetic world, a branded universe, interacting there. Um, That is I don't know that we're on the cusp of it, but it's coming and we need to be looking at it closely. Second, I would say robotics. We're going to talk about technology. I think robotics at the right price, doing the right things, interacting in the, in the right way, interacting in a natural way, a robot friend, a robot buddy, um, right. Taking that, that emotional connection that you can have towards a plush and really integrating the right robotics, the responsive robotics 
to to make that uh, a great property. And then I'll, I'll take it from a different perspective. What's missing? I think what's missing is we have to do a better job of communicating to parents the importance of play. And I think that will help us to our ju- to adjust our pricing scale up and adjust to inflation. I mean, the 20 to $30, that's, that's, that's kind of the top end of what we can ask for a toy. And I think we need to do a better job of communicating to the public at large, how important play is. And that is, that's a, it's a huge challenge, but I look at something like, like a Hallmark cards and we've talked about it before on the show, Hallmark cards, they build in the emotional connection to that card. That piece of paper is not worth $7. Mm-hmm. unless you pull it off the shelf, you look at it, you read it, and it says what you want to say to another person, and you you have that immediate emotional connection. And we have to key in on that with the toy products that we, we create. So I, I think those are the challenges. I think in a nutshell, I think that's, that's what's missing. Uh, Jeff, this has been just a great conversation. Yes, my, my audience is going to want to rewind, re-listen, take notes, You've got tremendous experience and insight. You would probably beat any one of us at Trivial Pursuit. And and now what I know is Maybe the original version. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing nothing past the year 2000. Uh, And and you'd probably win at at toy industry trivia, too. So uh, (laughs) thank you. Thank you for coming on, taking the time. How can people reach out to you, uh, get to know about Amigo Games, buy games and get involved? Yeah, so uh, our website is www.amigo.games. There's no .com on there, just amigo.games. Um, and uh, there's a contact us link on there, but my email would also be jeff.pinsker at amigo.games. And I'm happy to uh, connect with any listeners that, uh, that have any questions or uh, anything of interest that I'd be happy you know, and that I might be able to help with. Of course. Jeff, what a blast. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We'll talk to you soon. I look forward to that. And Phil, I have one other thing to ask of you before we before we sign off. And you may cut this out. But nonetheless, I would like to figure out a time when I can interview you. You've talked to so many people. You are so knowledgeable. <laughs> and I don't know that it, it, this information has ever been distilled. And as you, as you were giving that answer to the question that I flipped back on to you, I thought, what a great opportunity to capture some knowledge that's probably being lost. As an interviewer, you keep things moving. You ask great questions. But I think somebody should be asking the questions to you. So if you'll indulge me, I would love to set up a time when I can be the interviewer and you can be the interviewee. So, oh, I love it. That'll Let's be do a future, it. future podcast. It. You said we'll set up another date. We'll talk again. That's what we should do. Exciting stuff, Jeff. So we absolutely will talk to you soon. I look forward to that. <laughs> it's going to be fun, Jeff. See ya. Thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Power Kid Podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And leave a good review on iTunes. This helps us find more great listeners just like you. Remember also to check out the other shows that are a part of the Adventure Media and Events Podcast Network family. This show is brought to you by the Power Kid Design and Development Team. We are a full-service design and development studio serving the toy and game industry for over 20 years. Our partners, large and small, rely on us for invention, concept development, packaging, branding, prototyping, and much more. You can find me on my LinkedIn page, check out the website at powerkiddesign.com, or email me directly, phil at powerkiddesign.com. 
www.ryanmcdonald.com. I am always happy to connect and help you develop your next great product. It's been an honor to spend this time with you today. Now go out and make something great. And remember, you are creative because you were created. God bless, and I'll see you next episode.